They commented, I'm a lawyer and I have no idea why people would find this entertaining. Oh, terrible. I, I, that's, that's just hurt. That's hurtful. Now you've hurt Alex. How do you feel about that? This is a real person that you're hurting. I'm going to have to cope with it the only way I know how, which is to make a TikTok about it. All right, everyone, welcome to Barside. This is episode four, and you've got Alex and Cece on today, but unfortunately, Matt couldn't make it. I think he texted me saying that he had some better stuff to do than to talk to me and Cece, so it's just us today. Yeah, I think he has a family, which I don't really know what that's like. <laughs> yeah, he's got family things, which apparently are more important than this podcast, which very disappointing, Matt. I think that's why he was an insignificant law, because he had a family. And everyone knows that you can't be in big law with a family. Totally, totally. And so now we're, we're going to take advantage of Matt not being here and just talk about ourselves for this episode. Uh, Cece, how was your 2023 since we're about to wrap up the year? Yeah, no, I, I guess uh, first happy holidays, everyone. But 2023 was kind of weird because 2022 was so full of big life moments for me, right? Like that's the year I left big law. That's the year I sold my book. And then 2023 is just that moment after all these big things where you're like, crap, now I need to write my book. Now I need to follow through with all these momentous decisions I made. I assume, I mean, I'm not married yet, but maybe it's the feeling of after you get married and you're like, well, now, now I'm just married to this person. Yeah, totally. I, I think that um, it's been great to uh, have a little bit more calm. I mean, I felt the same way about this year too. Um, and Cece, I think we talked about this earlier, but did you, um, how, did you cut down on your social media usage this year too? I did, yes. I think I just got to a point where I realized I was making TikToks instead of writing my book, even though that's totally counterintuitive to my priorities and what I want to actually be doing with my life. So I did kind of take a step back from TikTok in particular and social media more generally. And it's weird how after a few weeks, you just don't care anymore. Like I was obsessed with social media and checking stats and all of that for most of what, 2020, 2021, 2022. And this year I've just been like, oh, yeah, it exists. And that's been really nice. I think you've done the same, right? I've done the same. And just talking to some friends who are active on social, many of them have done the same too. And we all have the same reaction that it's really nice getting off that treadmill. And you know, these apps are designed to get you to react. You know, the little red dot, you know, you want to check it to make sure that if someone's commenting, maybe you need to respond. So I've done the same thing, Cece. Like this year for me, um, I think 2022 was very active on social. This year, I, I, I cut back a little bit um, and I spent more time on the road. Uh, not a ton of time, but I went out to like conferences. I went to a couple of legal ops conferences. I went to Napaba. And, and the funny thing that I told you earlier is that, um, you know, this year when I was traveling, like people would ask me about you and Matt. Like at Napaba, everyone would come up to me and say, hey, do you know Cece? Like, she's on TikTok too. And I'm like, yeah, of course I know Cece. Um, and there was actually a really funny event. I went to a Sequoia uh, Capital, um, it's like a prominent venture capital fund. Uh, they, they, I met someone there who was a reporter from like, you know, in, in the press. And, and she said, oh, you're on TikTok. Like, do you know Cece too? And it's just funny that people just come up to me and start 
mentioning you and and you know they also mentioned Matt too like I, I went to um I forget what event I went to. I went to some some summit and then people would come up to me and they say, oh, I love your content. Do you know Matt, like Matt Margolis? And I would say, yes, I do. Like we're friends. And so it's, it's so funny that, um, you know, this year I got off of social media. I went out into the real world and I learned that, you know, people think of me and think of my friends, Matt and Cece. Uh, in the same kind of vein, or like the they think of the same thing. So, so that was really cool to see, and I really like that about this year. You know, meeting people in person. Yeah, I think you kind of forget that there are real people out there in the world who do in kind of watch your stuff, who do like what you're doing, but then aren't the comments from trolls being like, I hate you, your face sucks. Uh, and I think if you spend too much time in the comment sections, as I'm sure we both did in 2022, that's all you think about. You're like, everyone in the world are these like, you know, user 596432 and, uh, you know, these troll names type of people. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, we should talk about some of the comments we've gotten so far on the podcast later. But totally what you're saying resonates because like two things, right? The first thing is that you could have 99% positive feedback, but then that 1% or maybe that one person who says something not so nice, like it sticks with you. And that's, that stuck sticks with me. And I remember telling my friends early on in my social media experience, like I would say, hey, this person said some, some thing. What do you guys think? Like, should I hit back? And they all say like, you know, everyone says different things, but I think the perspective they brought to me was, you know, are a lot of people saying the same thing? If not, who cares? And, and that was a good point. Like it was only one person saying something mean. And, and I think that, um, you know, that's a good perspective to have. And, and I think the second thing is what I learned from going out into the world was that the vast majority of people who watch and listen and read the things that we make, they never like or engage with the content. Like they're lurkers. And, and, you know, we all have to remember that if, if we produce something on the internet, lots of people can see it. And, and, and most of whom, like the vast majority of whom, we'll never know who they are because they're just lurking. Yeah. And to be fair, like, I totally get it. I'm a lurker. I definitely was way more of a lurker back when I didn't create content. And I think it just has to do with how we were trained uh, as lawyers in law school, in school, right? We just kind of like read and go on with our lives. And also... In, I've been thinking a lot really about like the school pipeline to adult life a lot for my book and what you're saying about focusing on that 1% negativity is because for so much of our lives, we are supposed to please everyone in our lives, like everyone that we see. And I think the internet has presented a new quandary, which is when you have people outside of your life to potentially please, do you try to please all of them? Because I don't know about you, but like my parents were never really that uh, sympathetic if I was like, no, this teacher sucks. He just hates me. Like, that's why he's giving me a bad grade. They would have been like, well, study harder. It's not it's not their fault. It's your fault for not studying more. Because I had the same experience with my parents. Like, you know, how can we change ourselves to kind of mold ourselves to the environment? And And social media is so interesting because if you're aggressively yourself, you'll find that... Um, a lot of people will support you. And so, and there are going to be haters and there's going to be, you know, people who really like you and you can't please everyone. And that is like an important, such an important lesson. Um, once you get into quote unquote, the real world. And I, 
I think it's pretty cool that you're writing about it. Like, what else? What what other? Um, are you going to be interviewing people about it, or are you going to write from your own experience in the book? Yeah. So a lot of it is my own experience. I have interviewed a lot of other people about their experiences to just kind of like check if the things I thought about were real, because I think oftentimes our experience in work can feel very insular and like it's only happening to us. And I think we in America don't really talk about work and our feelings about work in the same way. So I uh, have done a lot of interviews. And, you know, I think like one interesting thing I was thinking about is, um, so, you know, Alex, you went to what, Northwestern, right? And at your firm, there were probably partners or senior associates who also went to Northwestern, right? Yeah. And did they, they like make a point to reach out to you? Some of them did. Some of them, not all, but some of them did. Yeah, yeah. There's still like an effort. And I was thinking about kind of the fact that there are associates from, you know, these schools that these firms don't really recruit as much from, right? Or like only recruit a few and it hit me the other day that for all the reach outs that we got, for all the like special school dinners that we got, they might not have gotten any. And it, I don't know, it just like kind of struck me that there is like a weird propagation of prestige that happens early and continues perpetuating throughout the years of your legal career. And and that was kind of disappointing because I think we all would like to think that at some point none of it matters anymore. But there are so many data points that show that it's hard to break away from the classic model of prestige, especially in law. Yeah. I, and I and as you're saying that, I was thinking back to when I was a summer. And I remember um, we had a lot of summers from HLS. And they had their own like HLS gatherings at Sullivan and Cromwell. Um, I, it was like HLS, Columbia, and NYU. Those were the three big school, big, big, like the, the most people came from there. Um, for schools like Northwestern, we actually did not have enough people to, to uh, have our own school-based event. So they lumped us together. It was like us, Michigan, University of Chicago, uh, a, f a few others. And I'm so, it was so like, I was so, um, I lacked so much self-awareness back then because I remember talking to another summer, I think it was a summer, and I was complaining to her. I was like, you know, there's there's no one here from Northwestern. It's like, this kind of sucks. There's like, like, there's like one other person here from my class and like it's only the two of us and like I feel like, you know, we're not as good as the HLS kids. And then she turns to me and she says, you know, I'm like, I went to American Law in DC and I'm like the only person at this firm like, like, and, and so it's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like there's other people in your, in your class here. So um, it made me so like embarrassed to be like, oh my God, I'm like complaining about this, this whole thing when, when it's like, I already, at least there are other people here from my school or there's a few, you know, associates who are, you know, there's a, there's a group of associates from Northwestern where, where this person didn't have anyone like that. Yeah. And ideally, right, it shouldn't matter. I think in an ideal world, it shouldn't matter. But I think what you're hitting on is the fact that to really emotionally and mentally survive those environments, it's very, very helpful to have a network in the same way that I think us meeting each other was helpful for surviving doing things online. So mm -hmm. I don't know. That's it, It's something I've been thinking a lot about lately for my 
book, which hopefully I think I'm going to finish the first draft soon. And then can, unfortunately, 2024, I think I plan on going back to social media a lot more, which I'm a little scared about. But uh, hopefully I can approach it with like a more balanced attitude this time around. Um, but yeah, what about you, Alex? What was your 2023 highlights? Well, I would say, you know, again, going, I think meeting people and learning about the impact of my my social media because I had always done social media. And I remember before the pandemic, I think I was, you know, I had a few thousand connections or followers on LinkedIn and I went to a conference and that was the first time someone came up to me and said, I, I follow you online. And that was a crazy experience. Then the world shuts down. Then like every, every single lawyer ends up going on social media. And so my growth, you know, accelerated then, but I was making TikToks. I was making content from my phone in my room, like in the you know corner of my apartment. It was like, I just didn't see people. And so I remember around like a year or so ago, I said, you know, you know, the, the you know, I, I want to be, I'm going to go out there. I want to see like, meet people because what I learned was that, and I learned this like probably at the beginning of this year, uh, I had become a cartoon character of sorts. Like I would go up because I make funny TikToks. I would go up to people. I'm not like a, I don't think I'm super funny like in person, but I can think of like, I can think of jokes and skits, but like I would go up to people and they'd be like, Hey, say something funny, funny man. And I'd be like, Oh my God, like, uh, I'm not that funny. And so, um, you know, it was, it was a bit of like calibrating. And I, and one reaction I got was like, people would say, oh, you're like pretty nice. I'm surprised you're so nice because you like make fun of so many people on, on your social, social media accounts. So, so I think that, you know, both seeing the impact of, of online activity in the real world was cool, but it was also cool to let people know like more about who I was, uh, who I really am, which is now I think about it very different than than who I might come across as online. Totally, totally. And I, I feel that. I think that social media posting on it necessarily requires you to flatten yourself as a character and as a person. And that's, it's helpful for branding. It's helpful for uh, getting consistent views in many ways, but it's not really helpful for feeling like you're being a person, which mm-hmm. I am coming around to the fact that Maybe the point of life is to be a person rather than a job or a character. Yeah, yeah, I, that, and that's also most sustain most sustainable because if you try to pretend to be someone you're not, if you play a character, if you always post content that's in your niche and not like who you are, I think that you will get tired of it. And you know, I think that's why a lot of people take breaks too, um, which is which is great. And I, I know I think it sounds like you've taken a break from social. I've taken a break from social. I know a lot of people have. Um, so, so it is kind of, uh, good to do that and, and get off that treadmill and avoid burnout. Yeah. Although, you know, what's ironic is that I went to a couple of like the TikTok sessions about how to make videos, how to like think of concepts and everything that they tell you is usually like find what works and run with it. Like just continue with it. So one creator, uh, he's pretty big, but he did some law content because he was in law school, but then he did like Roblox content and found that that did really well and then kept on doing Roblox content. And I was like, that is a recipe for performing well under a certain metric, but it's not necessarily a recipe for performing well under your own metric, which I think is very similar to advancing uh, in a legal career as well. I think it's like very easy to just get shuffled from one conveyor belt to the next and not really be achieving your own goals, even as you achieve 
literally a lot of other people's goals. Yeah, that's that's a really great point. And that's why it's always important to kind of keep your eye on the prize, what you're doing this all for. Um, you know, for me, I looked at, you know, this year I spent time also thinking like, what is, what am I, what am I doing all this for? And a lot of it has to do with, you know, um, spreading, just kind of talking about key issues in the legal industry. Um, that's really what it comes down to. Uh, technology is one of them. Um, and by the way, technology, there was so much that changed this year. Um, and that's something I wanted to talk about in terms of like big notable events for the year, which is, uh, you know, I work in legal technology, AI just this is AI's year for legal. And I know we talked about this last week, but it's constantly top of my mind because I didn't expect this to happen. I always thought that legal tech was going to be a niche kind of thing because of the stereotype that lawyers don't like tech. And uh, we were joking about this offline, but like I'm not actually the earliest adopter of tech and I find it surprising that I'm in this space. Um, but but it, it, it has really had an impact this year both with ChatGPT and AI kind of making its way through law firms. And uh, I know this week there was, there, you know, there was some news about, um, you know, Gunderson, I think, had a very successful pilot or, or has a very successful using um, case using AI. Uh, there was also Allen and Overy, like, releasing a contract AI type of tool. And so I think that these were things I never imagined would happen. Like, last year, all the years before, I had seen how hard it was for law firms to adopt the cloud, mobile, all, all these other innovations, but, you know, they eventually come around. This time with AI, it seems like to be moving very quickly. And so that to me was a big, a big story of 2023. Yeah, I agree. And I think part of it has to do with OpenAI's decision to make ChatGPT available for everyone, right? I think this kind of widespread adoption requires a lot of consumer adoption and consumer, like as a consumer, you realizing the value of something and then bring that to more of an enterprise setting. Uh, that's probably actually the best way to get enterprise buy-in on something is to have something that is undeniable from a consumer perspective. Because if you're using something and you're like seeing its capabilities and its power, of course you're going to want to bring that to you, your enterprise uh, in legal tech, but it's just harder of a sell if it's if it's someone like a salesperson like you, Alex, trying to sell me a partner, for example, on something that I haven't really used, that I don't hear my friends talking about, that I have to uh, kind of believe you about. And I feel like ChatGPT being avail available to everyone was like a free trial for the internet. And it turns out we really, really got on board. I think you really have a good point there about the consumers, like the consumer effect on the enterprise, because, you know, if I think about it, like so many of my friends have talked about AI and chat GPT. We never talked about the other technology stuff in the past. The fact that my parents like started asking me about chat GPT and, and my dad, I think has an account because I told them like, you know, you don't have to ask me to write emails like for you. Like you could just like use chat GPT. And, and I think that that, that drives the conversation and, and that, that has an impact like all across the business world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, don't under, estimate the power of consumer technology. There's a reason why iPhones are so prolific now and why so many smartphones, even if they're not from Apple, appear similar to the iPhone. Like that kind of saturation, you can't buy, you can't convince someone of. Um, and it, it kind of is what social media is about too. It's about like a democratization of taste. Yeah, that's totally true. And, and I think, I mean... The AI stuff is happening in the context of a lot of things that are happening in the legal world. And I'm 
Well, I'm curious for you, Cece, what do you think was a big story or big piece of news in the legal world in 2023? Yeah, so I think similarly to what you were talking about, about AI kind of jumping on board, the Supreme Court also addressed fair use for the first time in many, many years. And I think that ruling in conjunction with the proliferation of AI will have very interesting implications for how creation goes forth, how art goes forth. And for those of you who didn't follow the copyright fair use case as much, but basically the Supreme Court like significantly pared back uh, what could be considered fair use. It used to be a lot broader and it's just like, you know, if you're using it in a way that's transformative, then it's fine. And a lot of the circuit courts like agreed and would really have an expansive definition of fair use. And it got to a point, especially like in, in the Ninth Circuit, where like pretty much everything was fair use. They're like, fair use, fair use, you're creating more art. And the Supreme Court really stepped in and was like, no, this is, this is not what fair use is supposed to be. So I think it's just notable because especially as we get into more arguments about like who owns what, can AI use this? What is what is different about uh, an algorithm importing information versus like you and me reading something and then like using that for something? Uh, it I just think that the case will have a lot larger implications for everything. And especially if you're like into intellectual property, tech, AI, uh, it'll be interesting to see how all that plays out in light of the narrowing of what is considered fair use. Yeah. And I wonder if we'll see different courts uh, in different jurisdictions treat it differently. Um, you know, I, I'm not familiar with like who treats it, how, how people, how different circuits treat it now, but I got to imagine there's going to be some, some disparity, like, you know, like, um, you know, in the ninth circuit where California is, it may be, you know, it may have a different, you know, a different definition, a different interpretation of what the Supreme Court said. And, and it'd be cur- I'd be curious to see how it plays out because I know that the technology companies, especially the AI companies, they're all watching this probably pretty closely. Uh, it all impacts the type of um, products they can create. Um, and, you know, there's always this tension between, you know, business progress, technological progress and the legal kind of the legal and regulatory framework around it. Yeah, yeah. And it's like those questions that I think make law and tech so fun of a field anyway, is because we do often have this issue where the tech outpaces the law. So it's interesting to see how that plays out in real time and just hope that the AI don't absolutely take over and kill us all, which, you know, sometimes I'm like, AI, I wouldn't blame you if you did. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a crazy time. And um I don't know. I, I'm very excited to see how 2024 will shape out because, you know, from the, in the technology world, I do think that there's a belief that the progress will come very, very quickly. I think uh, in the legal world, like the lawyers tend to think, okay, let's it's going to happen a little bit more incrementally. Uh, but it, you know, a lot. Of, I think things moved more quickly on the technology side this year than I had expected. Again, going to what you were saying, because of ChatGPT's ubiquity, um, and so I wonder if that trend will continue to next year. Yeah, yeah. And I'll be interested as well how uh, employees respond to that. I feel like there's a lot of negativity sometimes around AI and its ability to displace jobs. Uh, I would like to see that move into a larger discussion about just like work and employee-employer relationships and, you know, what what we're really even doing by working. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, when you zoom out, I think between technology uh, the legal profession and social media, which are the three things that we talk about a lot in this podcast. 
uh, they all will exert influence on each other. Like they're not in silos. These things all happen in tandem. Like uh, it reminds me of, um, and maybe this is a good segue to the next, what I wanted to talk about next, CC, which is like the social media reaction to this podcast, both in the, the comments to the clips and comments to the episodes online. Um, I thought we could talk about that. Yeah, yeah. No, I always love meta discussion. So a podcast episode about this very podcast. I know. It's it's very meta. But we did get some feedback from uh, someone who said, you know, it would be good for this podcast to be more interactive. And so, you know, by talking about kind of what I'm seeing on the comments, I kind of want to... I was When I see these comments, I never know if I should comment back with my personal account. Should I use the pod count? But basically... We got a lot of great feedback. Uh, we got some great shout outs, which I want to talk about. And then we got some, I don't want to say constructive feedback. We got some pushback on some of the things that we've said, which I think were all pretty reasonable. So, um, or mostly reasonable with some exceptions. Uh, so I want to give a shout out to Kyle Robich. Uh, he's a partner at Bradley. He gave us a shout out, uh, the three of us, uh, me, Cece, and Matt uh, on the podcast on LinkedIn. Uh, thank you for the shout out, Kyle. Um, I think he he really liked the fact that we, you know, I think Matt gave him a shout out about how he's been using social media um, as a partner. So so kudos to him. Um, also, we got uh, a tag, I think, uh, Mel Scott, who is a senior legal counsel at Megaport. She gave us a shout out on, on Instagram. Uh, thank you, Mel. She's got her own podcast too. So um, maybe we'll include that in the show notes. Y'all should check it out. Uh, Mel has been a friend to us and she's just a great supporter. Uh, and then we also had a, a shout out from Erica Gallarneau, uh, who's marketing business dev- development at Cade's Shooty. Uh, she gave us a really nice shout out. And um, it was on LinkedIn and it was really kind. And then someone responded, and I want to talk to you about this, Easy, get your thoughts on this. Uh, someone commented, uh, there's a fair amount of cynicism in this discussion. And I think it was referencing our conversation about law firms and social media. Uh, this comment is from Nancy Merland. And, you know, I think, you know, personally, I could see where she's coming from. But I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, what do you think about that? Do you think we're being too cynical? Oh, yeah. I always never know how to respond to comments about like, oh, you're being cynical about it or you're like totally uh, just criticizing the law firm environment too much. I don't know if you ever get those comments just like on your personal videos. Like about that I'm being too cynical? Yeah, yeah. Or that like you're like overly criticizing the industry it's rare um but i'm trying to unpack why it's rare it it does happen occasionally um but it's relatively rare and it's i i always wonder why it is and i wonder if it's because the people my primary audience tends to believe what i believe um and there's another perspective that maybe isn't seeing my videos because i'm not going super viral um, do, do you get comments about like saying that you're being? Yeah, all, all the time, which I think fascinates me because I don't actually think I'm that cynical about big law. I don't think you are at all. I think I am. I mean, and I'm not getting the comments. It's strange. Yeah, no, I get a lot of actually like, you know, emails, messages about how I'm being like overly cynical or that like somehow I've turned into like a big law hater, which I don't think I am. And I try very carefully to not uh, project that. So it's, I think sometimes I'm like interested in the fact when people do think that there is like a certain cynicism in what we're saying um, and why that could be. Uh, It kind of reminds me of 
why sometimes when you talk to partners about progress at the firm, right? Like if you want to make some changes, uh, there's a certain like resignation to it's really hard to make progress, but this is the best that we can do. And you should almost be grateful for that progress. Uh, you should just look at the ups and not necessarily the potential, which I think maybe sometimes like lawyers especially are prone to viewing, seeing the potential and um, being positive as mutually exclusive. Like you can only do one or the other. You can't be both positive and point out where the firm or the legal industry could stand to improve. Um, and this isn't, I, I guess now that I'm saying it, it's not just a lawyer thing. I think it's like a person thing, right? I think oftentimes it's very hard to talk to even your family members, your friends about ways in which there could be improvement without a defensive reaction from them about like, oh, now you're just criticizing me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, this definitely feels like it's it's broader than just the lawyers. You know, I, I, I'm still surprised that people think you're cynical, Cece. Um, and my view of it is that because you, me, and Matt, we kind of sit on the outside now. Um, you know, we are not partners. We don't know how all firm operations work, which on the one hand means we're less informed about certain things, which I appreciate uh, some of the commentary from... Um, I'm going to, we're going to talk about later from, from some of the folks on LinkedIn, but, but what it also means is that we are free to say things that, that others can't, others who are in the know cannot. And, you know, I'll tell you, like, as an example, I'll, I'll flip it around. Like in tech, um, there are things that are true that I never say. I feel the freedom to talk about the legal profession because I'm kind of on the outside of it now. I'm a tech guy, so I could say things, but but, you know, um, the people who often have the most information are not able to say it out loud. And and so whenever I post about, for example, diversity uh, challenges of uh, technology, uh, you know, um, law like lawyers being tied to the billable hour, um, most of the, the public comments I get are, hey, Alex, like, that's not how it is. Here's how it really is. But then I get private messages saying, hey thanks for pointing this out. I can't say it publicly, but you're right. So I, I don't think I'm right about everything, but I do think that we bring a different perspective that, you know, I think we could say things that, that are true, that are hard for people who are still in the game to say. And that's why we rely on, on the feedback from, you know, DMs, from comments, for people to tell us, like, guide us in the right way. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I totally understand where Nancy is coming from being like, oh, this is kind of cynical. Cause I do think the clip taken alone could be seen as kind of cynical, especially that's the, you know, the bargain of social media is that you kind of clip out the most controversial parts and put it on there. But yeah, it's, it is tough because I do remember, you know, even two years ago, I felt there were things I thought, but I would never ever say. And even now I, I uh, definitely don't say some things about big law because I still feel like very tied to it in many mm -hmm. ways. So it's like, how do you balance the fact that the people who have the most knowledge will probably never say it because that's just the nature of conflict of interest uh, with the fact that uh, only outsiders can say something and they have less information. Yeah. And, and this is a good segue to this other feedback that I got. Um, I, I shared, we shared a clip of me saying that basically partners don't use social media because they're used to hanging out with people who agree with them 
and they're not equipped to be in on the internet where everyone's got an equal voice. Uh, the interesting thing was that the feedback from everyone was mixed. Uh, you had people on Instagram and TikTok commenting on that clip and saying, hey, that's exactly true, 100%, definitely true. But on LinkedIn, I thought it was interesting that a series of people who I thought uh, seemed like they would know, uh, they actually disagreed and they said, the real reason why partners don't use social media is because they have more to lose from it. Some of these partners have huge books of business and if they say the wrong thing, that could put that at jeopardy. Like this is a business dynamic. It's not about them you know, wanting to be surrounded by people who always agree with them. And I thought that was a very reasonable and measured um, piece of feedback. And I think that's definitely true. And it's certainly something I'm going to be thinking about. Um, and so, yeah, so like sometimes we'll have st some stuff out there. Uh, I love getting the comments because, um, and this reminds me of, of a story, Cece, of very early on when I made one of my early TikToks, I made a joke about how in-house lawyers have a great work-life balance. Like I made a, I was like, you know, like, oh, law firms, people work hard, but in-house is like, cruising, chilling. I got roasted completely for that take. And everyone was nice about it. But like, I got so many people saying this is wrong. And then you know, when like, they comment, and they say this is wrong. And then like, like, 10, 15 people like, like that comment. And it's like, you know, um, it made me realize that I didn't have the full perspective. And so since then, I started talking to more in house counsel and learned that actually, uh, many of them are overworked. Uh, and, and so um, I think that, and, and, and moving forward, I think that it, it helped make my content more accurate. So, so I appreciate the comments from um, from people, uh, especially around like why partners don't use social media. Yeah, yeah, and it, I think it also makes a lot of sense. Like, if you have more to lose, then why rock the boat in anything? I think we see this more generally, where the uh, you know the dominant in charge class of any society are less likely to adopt uh, innovations or technology or to really think about going beyond the status quo because what do they have to gain from it? It's always the people who have a lot less to lose and a lot more to gain, right? Who are more drawn to the idea of really things that can improve their station in life a lot more. And I think in that way, like associates probably see a lot more upside to social media than partners. Like the partners have built their careers without using social media, absent some major change where all of a sudden all lawyers are expected to be on social media. There's no real reason to, but I think for associates, they kind of view it as a way to maybe build their own book of business earlier on to fine tune their like public speaking media training skills early on. And uh, just to understand, like one of the reasons I loved using consumer tech was as a privacy and intellectual property lawyer, like I wanted to use these platforms so that I could understand it so that I could advise my clients on it better. Um, just like from a selfish angle, it's like, how do you really know the interests of stakeholders if you yourself are not a stakeholder? And to tie it all the way back, I think what you just said is exactly why so many firms are into AI these days, because they're trying to understand their clients too. So, so yeah, I, I definitely, and I, I definitely agree with everything you said about like what the upside and what the trade-offs are if you're like an established incumbent versus like someone coming up. It's, it's just a different, um, different challenges. Yeah. And I think it's reflected in the fact that uh, a lot of the commenters, or maybe not a lot, but commenters on LinkedIn disagreed with your take, right? But on Instagram and TikTok, uh, more commenters agreed. So I think that's like right there, this stark 
example of how the different demographics, those who have like more to lose, those who have like less to lose and more to gain, react differently to the same contention. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's what's so interesting about the reactions on different platforms. And I know, Cece, we had talked about this like before about um, some of the commentary from other, like, other, like I think it was YouTube. Uh, do you want to share some of the feedback you saw? Yeah. So I think YouTube, uh, I'm going to preface it with, I always think that YouTube is like a cesspool of comments, maybe only next to TikTok for some reason. Like the most heinous comments I've ever gotten have been on YouTube. Uh, I think because there's also no character limit. So sometimes people get like really, really in the weeds and it's just like beautiful study of humanity. But um, so one of the comments we got on YouTube was about, you know, George Mason University's funds. And this person, Caroline Yemen is uh, 7120 said, tuition is not how they make their money. Not anymore. It's via donors and the development office. And I guess this comment gave me pause because I was like, oh, I know that some schools like have massive endowments and that's how they really do a lot of their day-to-day -day operations. But I, I wasn't under the impression that like all schools relied on donations and endowment because I thought there were only like a few schools who had like monster endowments and all other schools had like, you know, some endowment, but uh, did have to rely on tuition for most of their operating ex expenses. Yeah, that's that was my take, too. Um, I, I'm i curious if people out there who know more about this can share, but like I, I, wasn't, I was under the exact same impression. That's why I immediately said uh, how much tuition... Uh, is being charged, how big are their classes. But but hey, maybe that's not true. Maybe that is, it is a fact that, you know, what's happening at George Mason has to do with um, what's happening with donors and, and the development office. I don't know. Yeah. And it's hard. I mean, it's always the argument against uh, having sky high tuitions at schools like Harvard and Yale who have like monster endowments. Like how can they have monster endowments and yet at the same time charge students so much for tuition? Like where where's the money really going? Where's the money going? I, there's this joke that I used to hear about Northwestern and they it was something along the lines of like our tuition is so expensive because our school believes that the more you charge for it, the more people will believe that it's a quality product. And so Northwestern has always had very high tuition. And then like, you know, it took me a while to pay everything off. And then and then now I still get messages like, hey, do you want to donate? And I'm like, you guys charge so much money. And yeah, it's, it's, I don't know how the finances operate. I, I really don't. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, they have finance departments who figure this out. I do get the impression that especially the top schools, they do have like a lot of money at their disposal, but there is also like a huge signaling thing. And this is true in law too, is the billable, like what's your billable rate? I feel like that was always a center of discussion. And there was a sense that the higher your billable rate was, the more important your hour was. And I remember at one point I was like, man, it must be really hard to date as an associate. Cause you just like view an hour of your time as what, like $700. And you're like, is this date worth $700? I guess that's an argument just for just like staying in the office forever, just working forever. Cause you're generating so much value. Yeah, and that, that's what people do. <laughs> it all makes sense. It all makes sense. Yeah, it comes back around. Um, and I, this other uh, comment from uh, Jerry Prompt on YouTube. And, uh, you know, get, get ready for this, Alex. But he, they commented, I'm a lawyer and I have no idea why people would find this entertaining. Oh, terrible. I, I, that's, that's just hurt, that's hurtful, Jerry Prompt. 
yeah, Jerry, now you've hurt Alex. How do you feel about that? This is a real person that you're hurting. I'm going to have to cope with it the only way I know how, which is to make a TikTok about it. <laughs> yeah, no, I actually love getting these types of comments from lawyers being like, boring. And it's like, all right, okay. I'm actually okay with being called boring, to be honest with you. There are other worse things that have been called online. What? Yeah, so like, um, you know, people are mean online. Uh, Isn't boring one of the most cutting things you can be called as an entertainer? Uh, I guess so, but I, may, maybe it's because I'm, I don't know, I, 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 I'm almost confident that I'm, I'm not super boring, although maybe in this podcast, I am more. Like I told you, like meeting people in, in real life, people are like, you're not that funny. By the way, this is why we keep Matt around, so. I know, comic relief. So sorry, guys, if this episode is less uh, funny, it's just because Alex and I are Asian and therefore not funny. Too serious. We're too serious. We're too good at math. I know, I know. So I think that was, the, was that the only bad comment we've gotten so far? That's, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it's not bad. And I, I also, I feel like whenever lawyers especially come up with some like sweeping statement about like how this isn't for me, so it must not be for anybody. That makes me really think sometimes that they must be terrible lawyers because I feel like so much of law is not necessarily telling your client what the law is, right? Like, yeah, we all can read the statutes. We all know like what technically is the rule of the law, but so much of being a lawyer is tailoring the technicalities of the rule to the specific situation. So whenever people are like, oh, well, you're doing this, so you know, you must not be a very good lawyer, period. I'm always like, you must not be a good lawyer because you're not, you're not accounting for different preferences, different situations, different circumstances. And if I've learned anything from being a lawyer, it's that no one ever wants advice on this is how it is, do it, right? They all want advice that's tailored to them, that takes risks in certain ways, that really uh, thinks about their situation holistically and their preferences and not just being like, well, this is what it says. It's black and white. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's the context matters. I think, well, well, you know what? Maybe next week we'll have Matt do something very funny. And that way, Jerry Prompt will come back in and say, actually, it is pretty entertaining. So who knows? Who knows? Maybe we'll take this. We'll win you over, Jer Jer Gary, Jerry, Jerry Prompt. Uh, but I hope that all of you who are listening, like, get that we, we really do read all the comments. Uh, we care about what you think. And uh, I love talking about what people say. Like last week, um, there was a really funny, somebody submitted a very funny comment on Twitter. And I, I happen to think my favorite part about social media is that people are so witty and clever. They might not create their own original posts, but in the comments, I have found that maybe this is a lawyer thing. Maybe it's in the legal world. People are really clever and witty. I'm like, oh, wow, I wish I thought of that. So, so keep the comments coming. Yeah, and thank you guys for listening. As always, like we are so open to comments, feedback, suggestions, all of that. Feel free to DM us or send us an email or just uh, rate and review if you love us. And if you hate us, then please don't rate and review. Uh, but with that, happy holidays, guys, and we will see you in the new year. Happy holidays, everyone. Take care.